vaccine is in effect. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and Ada Wong is your guest presenter. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, psychiatric care for people with uh, mental illness and support for those suffering distress after two tragic incidents which have dominated the news in recent days. The 39-year-old man has been charged with murder and remanded to Sulam Psychiatric Centre after two shoppers were fatally stabbed at a mall in Diamond Hill on Friday. And yesterday, a mother was arrested on suspicion of killing her three daughters at a flat in Shamshoi Po. We'll be talking to specialists about how to limit the risk of uh, such incidents occurring in society and what about the effects of uh, images circulating online. And to, you can join the conversation. Let us know what you think. If you like, you can leave a message on our Facebook page at Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88-266. And joining us now are guests, our expert guests for our first uh, segment. We have uh, uh, Dr Jimmy Dong, who's a specialist in psychiatry and uh, spokesperson for the Hong Kong College of Psychiatrists. Also on the line is uh, Janet Jung, CEO of the Samaritans, and uh, Terry Lum, uh, Professor at the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Um, good morning to you all. Thanks for joining us. Perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, Dr Jimmy Dong can come to you first. Hello, good morning. So, I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, two, well, very different cases, obviously, but um, I'd like to ask you uh, uh, whether you think uh, uh, there is enough psychiatric support for people uh, in the community who need it. Well, I think, um, obviously, um, in Hong Kong, there's a shortage of psychiatrists and also the, the long history of um, the ways of the uh, psychiatric services planned in Hong Kong probably need to change. It's actually been changing in recent years because um, in Hong Kong, uh, the psychiatric care mainly uh, relied on uh, public psychiatrists and private psychiatrists. But in a lot of other countries, um, psychiatric cares, apart from uh, being relied on the specialists, they need to have, um, for example, a general practitioner um, family doctors um, to help, um, which um, in recent near years in Hong Kong, that's actually been um, going in that direction. Um, but um, we are still at the beginning of that transition. Uh, right. Um, Dr. Tong, how could the GPs and, um, uh, and also maybe people in the community help these people to, um, for example, if they come out of hospital, they can reintegrate into society better? Well, I think the GPs, they could uh, help with um, the less severe cases and more stable cases. That's one thing. And then secondly, in the community, obviously, um, the education is very important for um, the general public and the people around the uh, sufferers um, to be aware of the problems and maybe the sign of some um, um, early um, deterioration in their uh, condition so that they could alert the um, professional um, and also to get um, the sufferer to uh, seek help. And uh, thirdly, of course, um, 
we need to change the stigma and uh, um, uh, against um, uh, mental health problems. Mm. Yes, it, uh, it's important to remember, and um, a number of uh, organisations such as Mind Hong Kong have been uh, uh, putting out uh, news releases and so on that um, uh, mental health and uh, violent incidents are not uh, correlated uh, and only a very small number of people with uh, mental illness uh, are involved in violent incidents. So, it's, like you say, it's very important not, not to stigmatise, right? Yes, um I think, um, such as our college, we actually have a public awareness um, a committee, a, a sub um, committee in the uh, college, and we are doing um, health education um, constantly. But unfortunately, um, sometimes some of the media they don't like to report um, these uh, education. Rather, they would like to report uh, some uh, tragedies in uh, in great details. Mm, yeah, okay. Um, uh, well, uh, Terry Lum, good morning. Uh, good morning. Yeah, Terry Lum uh, from the Department of Social Work and Social Admin at Hong Kong U. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Chief Executive uh, John Lee uh, has uh, promised uh, a review of mental health uh, services after the incident last Friday. Um, um, what sort of aspects do you think that should be looking into? I, I think uh, manpower is definitely a big issue. For example, as just um, the, you know, Dr. Sun uh, uh, just talked about, uh, we only have um, 400, about 400 you know, psychiatrists in Hong Kong, and then we have about 600 you know, clinical psychologists in Hong Kong. But if you look at the number of um, those who are working in the, under, for example, the hospital authority, a great majority of psychiatry are working uh, you know, in the HA, hospital authority. According to the latest number, we have 390 psychiatry working in the you know, uh, hospital, public hospital system, but only 105 clinical psychologists working you know, under the HA, but they are serving 271,000 you know, patients in 2000. 20. So that means if you just count the number, we each uh, mental health professional are serving more than 500 patients. We are talking about patients, you know, uh, in the hospital system. So there is no way we can, the current system can, you know, meet the need of our community. So, so I, I think there is an urgent need to think about a better system that can help to put, you know, people who have mild to moderate level common mental disorder, you know, as the previous uh, speaker said, you know, in the um, outside the hospital authority system. And then there is an urgent need to increase the number of uh, mental health professionals in the society. And there are different ways we can do it. Uh, we can examine how other countries, like the UK, the Australia, the Canada, or the United States, how they handle the challenge of mental health manpower shortage in the in the community, and we can develop a much better system in Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, how did they manage their uh, shortage of manpower? Um, you know, for example, uh, looking into the North American uh, system, what they did is they have a system of uh, clinical uh, social worker. So what they did was uh, social work training is more like, for example, if you, we are using a medical terminology, it is more like a GP training. So by default, uh, social worker, after the general uh, uh, qualifying training, they are not adequate, uh, they are not prepared to handle mental health uh, issues. So they need additional training. In the North America, they have two years clinical supervision and they need to pass an exam and then they will become qualified as an independent clinical social worker. With that qualification, they can 
handle uh, many uh, uh, mental health crises by themselves. So they can provide low to moderate intensity uh, psychotherapy, uh, you know, and supporting, you know, uh, the psychiatry as well as clinical uh, psychologists, you know, in the mental health system. In the United Kingdom, in, in, the, in the UK, uh, they have a system of mental wellness practitioners. So what they did uh, was is, uh, they, they train uh, people with undergraduate psychology degree, but they give them uh, one year of on-the-job training provided by the universities. So, and then they have, you know, a, a clinical practice under supervision. So by doing so, they can also provide psycho- low-intensity psychotherapy for people who have uh, common mental disorder. So with, um, you know, this triage system, uh, we can reserve uh, the highly trained psychiatry and clinical psychologists to handle more severe mental disorder or people who have imminent self-harm or harming other people. But for more stable cases or for people who have mild to moderate level common mental disorder, they can be handled, you know, uh, by clinical social worker as well as by psychological well-being worker, depending on which system we are talking about. Right. Um, Professor Lum, uh, clinical social worker, this sounds very good, but does um, your department have this concept? And uh, could you, I mean, uh, if you do, speed up the training of such clinical social workers? Actually, we did, um, uh, started from 2016, uh, the Jockey Cup Funder, one of our projects, the, uh, the Joy Age project, which we train uh, close to 150 uh, social workers, the clinical skill. So what we did was uh, we kind of copy the social work, clinical social work training in uh, the, state, uh, the state of Pennsylvania in the United States. And then we give them more, more than 200 hours of clinical training and supervision by a clinical psychologist and, and by senior social worker. And then we also have an exit examination. So by doing so, we prepare uh, you know, them for the you know, uh, uh, intensive uh, mental health uh, services. Uh, however, the challenge is right now the project is only funded by the Jockey Cup pilot, mm. but it is extremely challenging to convince the government to move it to become a mainstream. Mm. Right. Okay, uh, let's bring in uh, Janet Jung, CEO of the Samaritans. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If, if perhaps if we could just turn our attention a, a little bit to uh, to yesterday's uh, tragic incident, the three uh, children uh, found dead in the subsidised uh, flat in Sham Shui Po. Um, the mother uh, has been arrested. The mother apparently uh, had no history of mental illness. Um, well, what about um, you know, support for people like that? Uh, it seems that various agencies uh, had uh, tried to contact them but weren't successful. Yes, this is one of the problems that um, trying to encourage people to reach out mm. and ask for help. I mean, there are services are available, but how do you get those people that need them to actually access them? Um, they are represent the Samaritans and primarily we are a suicide prevention hotline. Mm-hmm. But we rely on people calling us. Um, we get all kinds of callers, not just people with suicidal thoughts. We offer emotional support for anyone who calls. Mm-hmm. And we just encourage people to call if they're just not feeling well, to express their feelings. Um, that often is enough. We are there to listen. We don't give advice. Everything they tell us is confidential. And if we 
by listening to them feel that they may have underlying causes for their reasons for calling, we can suggest, we only suggest, that they could think about going to see a doctor. We can't force it. It just puts the idea into their head, which we hope, perhaps in this case, had she reached out, had she done this, we don't know. But that is what we, uh, our purpose of the hotline is, to try to catch people when they're at the very beginning of mental disorders to try to get the help early. Yes, uh, Janet, I wonder, you know, whether uh, the Samaritans have um, multiple languages uh, uh, services. Um, I mean, I note that um, yesterday's uh, uh, the lady, um, uh, she's Indian, and so I guess uh, if her English is not very good, she might have to confide in someone who speaks uh, her language. That's right. Uh, our hotline is a 24-hour hotline, but of course, the person who answers the phone may be an English speaker, they may be a Chinese speaker. We do have some Indian dialect speakers, but we may have to arrange for somebody to call her back. I mean, we uh, only have one to two volunteers actually taking calls at any one time. So um, we do offer it, but it may not be immediate. Mm. So for somebody in a very uh, distressing situation, just the, the, the ability to be able to talk to somebody, you know, uh, obviously in the case of Samaritans, it's going to be somebody they don't know, a stranger. They just call the number, pick up, talk to somebody at your end. And uh, um, that presumably in, in many cases has got to be a, a, a great help, or at least a help to some extent in, uh, in you know, making the situation a bit better. That's right. We feel that just by talking to somebody, expressing your feelings, uh, we encourage them to talk as much as they can about what's going on. And if they open up just by us listening to them and having with empathy, uh, we don't say, uh, ask them questions, we don't uh, belittle them in any way, we just are there to listen. And quite often that's enough for them to think a little bit clearer of what they can do about their situation. Mm. But it has to be, as you say, the first step is that they have to call us. Mm. Okay. okay. Um, I have an email here from uh, listener Bowen. says, uh, uh, there are two problems here. First is the notorious inadequacy of resources allocated to psychiatric care in Hong Kong. The breathtakingly rapid technological and cultural changes are exacting a huge price on the mental health of our citizens. Alvin Toffler warned about future shock 50 years ago, but mental health care services continue to be woefully inadequate. The other problem is the the outdated and mistaken attitude of a lot of people. While clinical depression accounts for a majority of suicide cases, the vast majority of offences causing death or serious bodily harm are committed by people with no mental health problems. Um, that from Bowen. Uh, thank you, Bowen. Uh, the email uh, remind uh, other listeners, if you want to write in, it's at backchat at rthk.hk. Um, uh, Dr Dong, um, um, any response to Bowen's comment there? Well, about, uh, I, I mean, I agreed. I mm. mean, first about the um, uh, lack of uh, funding and, and the training in psychiatry. Obviously, I could only speak for uh, the psychiatrists. For example, in the 1960s, it's well um, documented and accepted that for per um, 100,000 uh, population, there should be one psychiatrist. 
And now in Hong Kong, it's about 400. That's still under that, well under that uh, recommendation. And actually, since 1960s, that has been um, revised. And now some country, they are talking about one psychiatrist per uh, 75,000 of the population. So you could see that that's, um, the numbers of psychiatrists in Hong Kong are actually well under the recommended um, uh, numbers. Um, secondly, I mean about the, um, what he talked about, the majority of the um, uh, uh, suicides are actually by someone with um, uh, psychiatric problem, mainly um, um, depression. That's actually true because we have a, a lot of research on that. In some um, research, it's actually 90% of the uh, 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 cases that committed um, suicides actually um, are by someone that with um, psychiatric problems or depression. And yes, um, majorities of um, violence and, and uh, murders are actually by people without any psychiatric problems. But unfortunately, uh, whenever someone with a mental problem that, um, and committed a, a violence act, that's what grabbed the headlines. And that's why we need to change that. In a lot of countries, there's actually code of practice around the uh, media uh, workers in how to report things like um, suicide, violence that related um, to uh, mental health problems. But unfortunately, in Hong Kong, there is no such a, a, a code of practice. Uh, yes, but Dr. Dong, if they don't show any signs of uh, mental illness and they have the intention to harm other people, I mean, how, how could the community, um, uh, I mean, pick up signs that um, this person, you know, might need help, uh, might need uh, clinical support? It's, wow. it's rather difficult, right? <laughs> well, that's why we need um, education, because um, when they, there is someone that's committed a crime, that because they uh, are not suffering from mental, any mental illness, of course we can't stop that because that's not. There is no sign that we could um, uh, uh, tell from a person that is not suffering from a psych- psychiatric problems. But if there is someone that with uh, psychiatric problems or mental health problems, and they are, they might have be at risk of committing a crime. Obviously, there are signs because there are a lot of. Uh, signs such as usually for uh, uh, mental health uh, patients that have uh, that are uh, at risk of committing um, uh, violence they usually have signs such as they are at um, the uh, 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 start of a relapse or into an illness the illness usually is a serious illness uh, mental illness such as psychosis which they have um, hallucination, delusion, they have um, odds behavior, they have certain behaviors and all that. All these could be telltale signs of someone that's starting a serious uh, mental illness that, they, that might lead to risk of uh, violence. That's why uh, uh, public education is so important and also um, getting rid of the stigma because I have seen patients that even though they have the insight of them being ill, actually people around them stop them from seeking psychiatric uh, help. Uh, really? Stop them seeking help? For, for, for what reason? 
the stigma of being mm. being mm. Uh, mentally ill. Mm. It could affect the futures. Everything. Mm. Okay, but um, um, I mean, uh, I would like to uh, take the uh, the shopping mall case as an example. That man um, has been under psychiatric care, and I understand has been released uh, from hospital. Now, usually, um, just as a general. Remark. Usually, you know, they they would be taken care of by social workers or by um, um, you know community people. Is, is that correct? Um, I mean, uh, could something be strengthened so that um, he can get more help uh, in the community? Well, um, unfortunately, um, the law currently in Hong Kong, although there are some uh, laws that uh, control. For example, when someone have a risk of violence and then they are released from the hospital into the community, there is a, a law that governs that they have to receive, such as the, what we call a conditional discharge, that they have to receive a treatment, they have to attend, follow up, that sort of things. But that treatment, that, that order of treatment only to the point that if they don't follow that, they could be recalled back into the hospital. Mm. But in some other country, they have actually what we call a, a community treatment order. So they could be treated in the community if they, for example, are in relapse, but they are not um, as severe as that they need to go into hospital or they don't follow um, treatment um, that prescribed by the doctors, we could actually, for example, send nurses to their home to make them take medication to give them injection instead of just bringing, back, bringing them back into the hospital. Mm. Uh, uh, Terry Lum, yeah, that, the mm -hmm. concept of, of care in the community, uh, it's uh, uh, practiced uh, elsewhere also, isn't it? Rather than, you know, rather than keeping people in institutions, uh, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're released under certain conditions. And, mm -hmm. uh, and what, is, is, it, um, is, it, is it working? Is this, does it work properly here in Hong Kong? No, uh, it is not. You know, in Hong Kong, uh, in the community level, the government, the social welfare department, they funded what they call the Integrated Community Mental Wellness Center. So the soft form is ICCMW. So there is 20-something of those centers in Hong Kong. But the center is not kind of um, treat, uh, see as a treatment center. So it is more like a community reintegration, rehabilitation center. And they have... Um, case worker, but they don't have a care manager in those centers. So that means once the patient kind of discharge into the hospital, they can have, if they are lucky, they can have a case management services in, you know, by the hospital authority. But that is more hospital-based. But in the community level, they don't have a case manager follow up with their treatment. Our second one is we did not develop the capacity of providing psycho, uh, low intensity or moderate level um, intensity psychotherapy within the community. So in Hong Kong, for example, uh, those ICMW are mainly staffed by social worker. So the requirement of the social welfare department is um, they need to have two staff who have at least three years of mental health experience. But that's it. They don't, did not specify what kind of training that person has or what kind of experience that person has. 
So in social work, uh, professor, we are trained to do um, relational counseling, but we are most social workers are not trained or do not have any official training in mental health and, and, and psychotherapy. So that is an area that we need to have additional training beyond the qualifying uh, you know, uh, 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 degree. And then the second one is more important is we need to have a system that really provide uh, psychotherapy, provide case management in the community level. Instead of you know, having everyone, every patient, even though they were discharged into the community, going back to the hospital authority for services. So as I said before, hospital authority only have 390 psychiatry in 2020, and then 105 clinical psychologists. So there is no way they can fulfill or meet the need of 2,070-something, uh, uh, no, 271,000 active patients you know, under the system. Mm. So, so I think there is an urgent need to really rethink and revamp the current uh, mental health care system in Hong Kong. Okay, thanks. Uh, well, uh, I guess please stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break for a, a news summary and a couple of uh, government announcements. Uh, we'll resume the conversation in, in about uh, uh, three minutes' time. Um, just a, a quick look uh, at the weather first. Uh, it's going to be mainly cloudy uh, with uh, showers and thunderstorms. Uh, uh, more showers uh, later on today and the outlook uh, showers and thunderstorms uh, tomorrow and they'll be heavier in some areas and continuing uh, in the next couple of days. Um, currently the temperature is 30 degrees, humidity is at 77% and the thunderstorm warning uh, is in effect and will remain so until 11.45. <laughs> here's the so new summary with uh, Andrew Shirovsky. Ukraine. The Society for Community Organizations says that the government should boost its support services for ethnic minorities and conduct more regular home visits on the vulnerable. Its deputy director, C. Lai Shan, was commenting after a woman of South Asian descent allegedly killed her three young daughters yesterday. The family was part of an active case at an NGO. Lawmaker Andrew Lamb says he hopes people will visit the Hopar Mansion when it opens to the public on Friday. The former chairman of the Antiquities Advisory Board described the 1935 building, built by the man known as King of Tigerbaum, as historically significant and tremendously attractive. And U.S. regulators are suing the world's largest crypto exchange, Binance, and its creator, Changpeng Zhao, for operating what they call a web of deception. The charges come as the U.S. pledged to use its laws more aggressively to oversee the crypto industry. They follow the collapse of rival, excuse me, rival trading platform FTX. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. The Minimum Wage Commission is collecting views on the review mechanism of the statutory minimum wage. With reference to the views collected from the first stage consultation, the Commission would like to collect more specific suggestions from various sectors in this round. You are invited to send your views to the Commission on or before June 25th. For details, please visit its website at mwc.org.hk. Want to be a perfect employer? You have to pay wages and make MPF contributions on time. Remember to make MPF contributions and submit remittance statements on or before the 10th day of each month. If there are public holidays on or before the 10th of the month, you should arrange your MPF contributions earlier. A 5% surcharge will be imposed for late contributions. 
use electronic services to make timely and accurate contributions. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And welcome back to uh, Backchat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about uh, psychiatric health and uh, support in the community uh, following uh, two very uh, high-profile and tragic cases which have uh, dominated the news in the past uh, few days. Um, We have with us Dr Jimmy Dong, who's a specialist in psychiatry and uh, spokesperson for the Hong Kong College of Psychiatrists, Um, Janet uh, Jung, CEO of the Samaritans here in Hong Kong and also uh, Terry Lum, a professor at the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Um, just uh, a couple of uh, emails here from uh, listeners. Um, this one, the, the listener didn't include their name, but uh, it's relevant nonetheless. It says, uh, providing psychiatric care is definitely desirable and to be encouraged, but surely some more effort needs to be devoted to the base conditions that impact psychological problems. Of course, uh, I'm referring to the shameful housing that the Hong Kong government does not seem to be serious about ameliorating. Isn't uh, Sham Shui Po apartment a convenient uh, euphemism for subdivided flat? That poor mother with three children. And um, also, uh, this one is a, a reminder, says a reminder from the Samaritans, a uh, uh, reminder to listeners, the Samaritans 24-7 hotline can be reached at 2896-0000. And for those who wish to write, they can email, uh, it says uh, joe, J-O, at samaritans.org.hk. Um, uh, ja- Janet Jung, I've read the correct number there. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, there's, there's another element of this that uh, I wanted to ask uh, all three of you about, and perhaps you first, uh, uh, Janet Jung, because um, video of the incident on Friday at the uh, at Hollywood uh, Mall in Diamond Hill, um, that's been shared a lot on social media, and um, I think the, the impact on a number of people must have been quite traumatic. I mean, the chief executive and the mother of one of the victims has asked people to stop sharing the video. I mean... Have, have you had um, you know people calling you saying, "Look, I've I've seen this and uh, I find it very upsetting." Well, I say all our calls are confidential, yeah. um, so I can't give any details as such. But um, as you say, it did uh, cause a lot of um, emotional disturbance for some people, and we were there available to talk to them if they wanted to call us. So mm. that's really all I can say. Yeah. But um, you're quite right. It did upset a lot of people. Yeah, do, yeah. Do, do you find uh, social media, you know, in general, uh, is, is responsible for, for, you know, a lot of trauma from, you know, people who've witnessed it? Um, social uh, um, media, I, yeah. I think a lot of people do spend a lot of time on it, but um, it's hard for us to tell if it's um, having that mm-hmm. much of an effect mm-hmm. unless they tell us precisely. Um mm-hmm. Mm. It what? plays a part, definitely. Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. What, what, what do you think, uh, uh, Doctor Dong? Um, uh, you know, the, the, the place of social media in all of this, and people sharing videos of of real events, which uh, which, quite frankly, can be quite horrific. Yes, I agree with that. I mean, there's no getting away from social media now in our uh, generations, but. Um, it is important for people to not share these because um, we know that with um, images so uh, horrific could actually cause a lot of psych 
psychological as well as psychiatric problems from just some uh, short-term emotional uh, disturbance to all the way up to a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, that's why our college actually released a press uh, release uh, immediately to uh, advise um, uh, the community not to share uh, these um, uh, images and videos. Right. Um, uh, I understand that in some cases um, they are like copycat syndromes. Um, do you think, you know, like this sort of uh, video would also trigger uh, different um, emotions in um, those people who already need psychiatric help? Well, I think that certainly is the case uh, uh, possible uh, because um, that's why, as I said earlier, that there are like code of uh, practice um, uh, in uh, certain countries about how to report um, incidents such as these because we know that there are effects on other people in terms of causing their emotional uh, disturbance as well as, as you said, copycat some uh, problem. Mm. Um, uh, Terry Lum, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, where do you stand on that and uh, the use of social media and sharing videos? Actually, I, I myself feel quite upset when I saw the video first. Mm. I, I even warned my family not to watch those videos. So, mm. so I, even as a social worker myself, I thought I feel really emotionally di disrupted by, you know, um, upset by, by the video. So, so I think it is definitely, I agree with uh, Dr. Sean, um, it is really important that we have a code of ethics for the social media and for the traditional media on how to report those, you know, hor horrific, you know, uh, moments. So, so I think there is no reason that, uh, you know, um, we don't have such code of ethics in, in Hong Kong for the mass media, for the social media. Mm. What, what do you think? I mean, re related to that, I mean, social media is one part of this, but uh, our correspondent uh, Bowen wrote uh, before the break, uh, talking about uh, rapid technological and cultural changes mm -hmm. in society, which were having, having an effect on the mental health of our, of our citizens. Uh, is, that, um, you know, is that a phenomenon that you acknowledge? No, I think that technological change is kind of neutral, right? So we can use it even for... Uh, better promoting uh, mental wellness, or we, we can have a negative impact, you know, uh, like what happened, you know, in the last two days on uh, mental wellness. So, so I think it is more important that we uh, be, quote unquote, in charge of the direction of how technology can use it to enhance, you know, the understanding or education of uh, uh, mental wellness. So, so I will not uh, simply bring, you know, the technology side. It is kind of a neutral platform that we can use it for our purposes. But if we don't use it properly, then it will turn up to be a, a kind of a, a, a platform for lots of uh, horrific or wrong information. Right. <clears throat> Going back to the um, issue of human resources, now we need more psychiatrists uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, we also need social workers who are trained and, you know, un and clinically trained. And, um, you know, to ensure that, um, you know, Hong Kong is doing better in, in uh, I guess, uh, psychosocial health. So, but this is a very long-term problem. And um, it, it has to start with um, the government acknowledging this and also increasing uh, the number of places in universities. Or could we actually just, um, you know, in... Uh, get people, you know, in uh, you know, in this area, in this professional area, to come and practice in Hong Kong. I think that's uh, 
that really cannot be done, right? Uh, perhaps, uh, Dr. Jimmy Dong, you can start. How could we get more psychiatrists for Hong well, Kong? Well, I, I know that that's a, a long-term um, um, issues, but um, uh, is it that easy to get someone from uh, another country, for example, to come and work in Hong Kong in psychiatry? I think that's very difficult because there are a, couple, a few issues. One is obviously the language because psychiatry is one that you don't, we don't um, do our diagnosis on um, um, investigations and, and blood tests and all that. And secondly, psychiatry is very much um, depends on the culture. Mm. For example, I mean, for a delusion, if you want to make a, a, a diagnosis of a delusion, you have to depend on the culture as well. Um, for example, um, in Hong Kong, there are lot of, lots of um, uh, superstitions and, 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 and practice and all that. In another country, that might be considered a delusion. But in Hong Kong, that might be part of the culture. So that's why if you get someone from another country to come to Hong Kong and practice uh, psychiatry, that could create problems even in the diagnosis. Right, so how can we uh, increase the number of psychiatrists? I guess we have to start from university level and there's no shortcut? Well, I don't think there is a shortcut um, in terms of a, a, a highly professional uh, a, a people, yeah. Mm. Uh, how long does it take uh, to train um, a psychiatrist? Well, <laughs> it's a long time. Yeah. We need um, five years in, <clears throat> in university for the basic degree and mm. then one year of uh, 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 apprenticeships and then another six years minimum to become a specialized in specialist in psychiatry. Whoa. So so how many mm. people are, mm. you know, the university's training per cohort or per year? Well, mm. I don't have that figure uh, with me, I'm afraid. Mm. And also because when they graduate um, as a, a, a doctor, they could choose uh, various um, specialties. So it's only a small proportion of them would go into psychiatry. And that really depends on the availability of training posts as well as their interest. Right. And Professor Terry Lam, we need mm -hmm. uh, more social workers who are properly trained. Um, mm -hmm. uh, could we do that quickly? Oh, yes, I do think so. Uh, we have about 17,000 uh, active registered social workers in Hong Kong. And if we can convert, for example, 10 to 15% of them to become a clinical social worker, uh, we are talking about incre increasing about, you know, uh, 2,000 uh, 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 trained mental health professionals uh, to provide services for mild to moderate level uh, people uh, suffering from mental disorder. And it can be done uh, within a couple of years. So, so uh, going back, I totally agree with Dr. Son. It is pretty much impossible uh, to think about increasing the number of psychiatry as a short-term solution. So it should be a long-term solution. But in short to medium ter uh, term, I think we should better utilize um, social worker as well as some uh, formally trained uh, counselor to provide additional mental health specific training for them and to prepare them to become, you know, uh, to provide psychotherapy, uh, evidence-based psychotherapy for people uh, suffering from mild to moderate level uh, mental disorder, as well as to provide 
uh, case management services at the community level. But one major hurdle right now is the funding services agreement um, by, by the social welfare department, which dictate the kind of services provided by the ICCMW. So, but in the IC, in the FSA, the funding services agreement, the government really do not provide much room for the social worker to provide intensive psychotherapies in those centers. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there an, an, a consensus between the psychiatrists and also clinical, clinical social workers that, um, you know, I guess the social workers can only do so much uh, in psychotherapy and then, you know, a psychiatrist has to take over? Uh, G- Jimmy Dong? Well, uh, there is no um, an absolute consensus of how to do it. That's why um, it's important for the training for the uh, uh, clinical social worker so that they know their limits, what they could and could not do, and when they should uh, refer on the patient or the client. Okay. All right. Well, well thanks very much. Let, let's just give a, a last word here uh, to uh, Janet Jung, CEO of the Samaritans. Uh, um, as you say, uh, uh, Janet Jung, Samaritans are a very well-established, uh, uh, long-running uh, organization, mostly um, involved in uh, suicide prevention. Um, um, can, can I ask you, what, what's your sort of workload been like in the last uh, few years? Have you, have you, have you had a, an, an increase in the number of callers? Um, well, I think actually there's been an increase in the number of hotlines available for people mm. to call. Mm. So um, ours has been pretty steady, um, but it's a choice people have now. They can choose different types of hotlines. Mm-hmm. And for some people, the way we um, answer our calls might not be what they're looking for. But we always stick to the Samaritan's principles that we are there to listen and that the caller has their choices we follow what the caller wants we don't give advice so we are quite specific uh, in the way we take our calls Mm -hmm. but we're there 24 hours a day for anybody who wants to call us okay okay and if you i'll just give out that number again if you like uh uh, Mm -hmm. 2896 000 000. that's 2896 000 Yes, correct. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for speaking to us uh, on the program there. Uh, Janet Jung, CEO of the Samaritans. Thanks very much to Dr. Jimmy Dong, a specialist in psychiatry and a spokesperson for the Hong Kong College of Psychiatrists. Um, Thanks also to uh, Terry Lum, a professor at the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of uh, Hong Kong. we're going to uh, take a, a very short break now for um, a quick uh, announcement about uh, 95 years of public broadcasting and then we'll be back uh, with another shorter topic uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Christine Choi, the Secretary for Education. Congratulations on the 95th anniversary of RTHK and many wishes for its future success. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. And we're now uh, joined on the line by uh, Bill Sievers, who's uh, uh, a licensed tour guide here and founder of uh, Streets of Hong Kong Premium Tours. Uh, Good morning to you. 
Good morning. And Bill uh, is with us uh, to talk about the uh, forthcoming uh, reopening of the, the Hoare Park Mansion, which uh, uh, many of our listeners uh, may uh, know about. Uh, some may have uh, visited uh, before in the past, uh, before it was closed. Um, this was uh, uh, built um, in a, around about 1935 by Orboon, uh, sorry, or, yeah, Orboon Hoare, who was uh, known as the King of Tiger Balm. Um, the house is meant to be like, uh, it, it's a family mansion. It is uh, an example of the Chinese uh, Renaissance building style. Um, it has been um, popular over the years. Like I say, it's been uh, closed for a while, but it's uh, uh, reopening on Friday uh, to uh, guided tours. Um, um, Bill, um, how much of a sort of a significance is this and how attractive do you think it's going to be? Well, <clears throat> I think it, uh, it, it means something depending on who you are. Um, it, it, for example, if there are Hong Kong people who grew up here, lived here all their lives, or what have you, and remember the experience of going into the Tiger Bomb Garden because it was the first theme park in Hong Kong, People didn't have a lot of money. This was a very exciting thing for a lot of people to go either as kids or as a family, et cetera, et cetera. Although it was kind of quirky because it was scary to go in there. You know, there were there were exhibits that were depicting scenes from, you know, purgatory, the Chinese purgatory, what have you. And they were kind of gruesome and macabre. But anyway, people all remember it. And then there are many, you know, I'm a freelance tour guide. I work for travel agencies. They send me lots of people from overseas, and many of them still are baby from the baby boomer generation and the World War II generation. They were in the armed services. It was right when global tourism was taking off with airlines. They remember coming to Hong Kong, and everyone went at that time. That was like... If you look at all the old brochures, and I do, the Tiger Bomb Garden it was, was, you know, a main feature attraction in Hong Kong. And there are many people who I've met who, have, who are from a, a later generation who say, you know, my dad used to talk about this. He said, if you go to Hong Kong, and, you know, I, or there were pictures in the family photo album, I see my dad. And, and there are a number of places like, uh, for example, the Jumbo floating restaurant was another is another one where they say i want to go see that because my dad always talked about that blah 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 or my mom always talked about going there with my dad and it's very hard to show them these things obviously when they disappear and tiger bomb garden is an example of that yeah right um, um but but now you know the whole par mansion is the family house um, yes. It was it was open to outsiders for a while, and then it was closed down. Um, but it is not the gardens, as far as I understand, because right. I I visited the gardens when I was a kid, uh -huh. and I was so scared, I was horrified, and I told my mother that I would never go there again. And I guess that is like a collective memory for those people like me, you know, who have been there. But I I actually don't know the mansion. So, Bill, could you yeah. tell us a bit about the mansion? Why okay. is it Why is so, it important? You're right. When I was a kid, I saw the Tiger Bomb Garden, too. I remember it. And the mansion was right next door. It was the family's home in Hong Kong, which they, where they had the Tiger Bomb headquarters. And so that wasn't, as I understand it, that was not for the public. That was for private events, and that was the thing. And it's of this style, which is Chinese, called Chinese Renaissance. Some people call it eclectic, Oriental, Western eclectic, and other people, you know, call it other things, architects and, and, and what have you. 
but the fact of the matter is there were more of these places once upon a time, and one by one, they all disappeared as a result of development. And this is one example, and the other one is King Inlay, which is right up the road. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, they, they're beautiful buildings. They're not, they are not straight, you know, as you say, is this pure Chinese architecture? No, it's not. It's eclectic. It's, there are Italian stained glass windows in there. The, there are details in the buildings that combine both. And I and many other people say that makes it, still makes it very interesting to look at because this reflects a period around shortly following the, the, the First World War and the Shinhai Reza, uh, uh, you know, the uh, rebel, revolution and, and the mindset of Chinese people, which was, you know, yes, we're Chinese, but we're also part of the world. And so it's a combination of everything. It re- reflects that period. And um, this is an opportunity for people in Hong Kong to go and see what was that about. And for other people who are visitors to also go and see, hey, what was that about? And the problem is, this is not a place where there's going to be a lot of traffic uh, in terms of the numbers, because it's not easy. There's no parking lot there. You can't park your car there. There's no room for buses, tour buses to go there, and it's not a very big place. Uh, so they've got it set up now so that four, four times a day, three days a week, and then on holidays, you can pre-book and then go on a, a, a guided walk through the building with a docent who's going to explain in detail what all these little things are. I'm sure it's very interesting. The problem is they're only doing it in Cantonese. Oh, interesting. But um, they don't really yeah. allow for foreign tourists to go then? No. I, well, you know, see, the thing is, I'd be happy to take my clients in. You know, I do private tours when a travel agent hires me. I take people for private tours. I'd be happy to go in there, but I can't. Because it would require me booking one of these tours with a docent, and I know what that's like. They don't want to have somebody else blabbing in English while they're doing their Cantonese, you know. And I say, why is it that Hong Kong can't do this? If you've ever been to Bangkok, the Jim Thompson house has no problem doing this in many different languages. Why can't we do that? I'm not complaining. I'm asking a question. Why can't we set it up so that you can at a minimum see it in English or even maybe, hey, once a day we'll do a tour in French. I know for a fact because I know the foreign tour guides in Hong Kong. They would be happy to do this, okay, as a side service because it's interesting for them. They want to give back. But the problem is this isn't the only attraction, and I'm not going to go into it, but there are many others where you can't even be trained to be a docent in English. Mm. It's only in Cantonese. So they're gearing these, these really wonderful localities for access for Hong Kong people, no wonder we don't have enough tourist attractions. Right. But what, what, what is happening in Hope I mentioned these days? Is it just now a vacant building? Or I understand yeah, well, that, it, that there used to be like a music school in there. But now yeah, if it is opening a, up for tours, would there be like a cafe or am I thinking too much? I, I, I read what's online. It doesn't look like there's going to be a cafe in there. You know, the place has been retrofitted so that there's proper fire um, safety features and air conditioning and this and that. They could probably repurpose it into something else. And Kenyon Lay is, um, you know, is going to be uh, starting in, um, I think, in 2027. There's some 
foundation that's turning it into a, a Chinese um, medicinal and, and, and tea uh, experience where you can sit there, uh, you know, and, and enjoy the view in the gardens and, 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 and um, experience Chinese culture that way. And I think that's a very nice idea. I'm very interested in seeing how that goes. But this place looks like it's just going to be empty. And on the open days, four tours of 24 people will be taken around to view it. Now, I have to say, you can't expect every location like this to be to be a big, you know, uh, operation with lots of tours going on constantly every day. You're not going to get enough flow. But I, I would point out as an example, for example, if you go to Macau, uh, the, you know, the center of town has a World Heritage Walk, and on the World Heritage Walk is something called the Mandarin House, which is very architecturally significant. It's the same deal. It's an, a Chinese resident um, Renaissance house that was built by a comprador who was basically like a Robert Hotung type of person who was interested in the West and the East. And they don't even have guided tours. Maybe they do, but it's not something that you, you can just walk right in as a family, you don't need to have somebody escorting you around. They have it set up with a with a um, a one room where you can watch a film that explains everything, and there's another room with all the the information and pictures on the wall. People are smart enough to figure out what's going on, and then there's guards. Yes, you need to have guards because these are architecturally significant premises. There are things that are valuable. You've got to have guards. Okay, so what? You need to have guards. That's a cost you got to have. But people could then, like, go at their leisure on certain days and experience this quietly on their own or with someone like me, who's a private guide. Um, or perhaps they can get something else going where they have once in a while a regular tour that's, you know, offered in English um, by docents trained by them. Mm. To, yeah, they could yeah, do a lot more I've, to make to make it more accessible. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. I've, I've never been to the Mandarin House in Macau. Have they, do, do they have information in different languages? Uh, yes, they do. Mm, mm, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, you know, they got to yeah. have it in Cantonese. They got to have it in English and Portuguese. And yeah. They got to have it in Mandarin. Sure. Yeah. Mm, and it's mm. not a big, complicated thing. You know, yeah. it's like somebody just needs to say, "Hey, let's do this." Yeah. Actually, so, you know, the tour guide. When you get a tour guide license. The road, the um, the road test. There is a road test. The bus goes right by Hawpaw Mansion. It's part of the road test. Actually, you're required to know what the commentary is as the bus rolls by. People have to crane their heads to look out the window to actually see it. Um, the, the, everybody is aware of this thing. It's just like it's a puzzle. How do I, and along that route, okay? are a few things that are like this, which are interesting for certain people, enough to, for them to say to go there, but for them to say, you know, it's, it's sort of a hassle for me to do that. But, you know, I'll tell you what they are. There's Hawpaw Mansion. There's the Hong Kong Cemetery. A lot, you know, there are people who are interested in that. Mm. There's King Yang King, King Lei. There's the, uh, the police museum up the road. This is all going up Stubbs Road. Yeah. They could easily take that number 15 bus that everybody takes up to the peak, mm -hmm. and they could say to the bus company, why don't you issue a one-day hop-on, hop-off yeah. pass yeah. 
So people can just get off the bus stop, go and look at this, get back on the bus, and then you wind up at the peak, and then you take the tram back down. Okay, we'll see how that goes. Sorry, sorry, you have to stop you there, Uh, Bill Sievers. We're out of time, but thanks very much for joining us. Bill Sievers, tour guide and founder of uh, Streets of Hong Kong uh, Premium Tours. Um, Thanks to our listeners who wrote it. Thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. We've got a new summary coming up, followed by Brunch with Noreen.